Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you. My name is Jonathan Newfeld. If you haven't uh, met me yet, I'm the campus pastor here, and uh, it is a delight to be here with you this morning. Well, I want to begin by telling you uh, about someone who I think is perhaps one of the most interesting men you've never heard of. Uh, his name was Helmut James Graf von Moltke, which is a huge mouthful of a name. Uh, and as you might be able to guess from that name, uh, he was a German man. So he was a German man. He lived uh, before and during the Second World War. And uh, he was a lawyer. He actually practiced law. And part of that was actually working in the government at the time during the rise of the Nazi power in Germany. Now, perhaps most significantly about this man is he was a devout Christian. And so that put him in a very difficult position to be, to be working in the German government at that time as a Christian was a dangerous thing to do. And so Moltke had to decide whether or not he would continue on, whether he would try and actually work in this government, whether he would just leave and flee, say, this is no longer my problem, and run away. Moltke decided to stay. In fact, in the years before the war, he worked tirelessly to work against many of the, the Nazi uh, policies and things that were coming into practice. In fact, he argued that it was right to disobey Adolf Hitler as the Fuhrer. That was not a popular opinion at the time. In fact, he argued that it was not only immoral to follow some of the things he was commanding, but actually it was illegal based on German law. And actually, he was quite convincing. He, he descended from the popular opinion to follow along and actually cause a lot of things to slow down. He worked to be that grinding gear to not allow the continuation of what they were looking for. In fact, he probably slowed down the beginning of the Second World War by some time. However, it did begin. He wasn't always listened to. And so the Second World War began, and throughout that time, he would actually send word to people before the Germans would attack. There was actually a group of, of Danish Jews uh, that were going to be attacked by the Germans, and he sent word, and many of them were able to escape. He saved thousands of people's lives by staying where he was and using his position to work against the atrocities that were happening. See, he was a devout Christian, and it was certainly his faith that led him to the conviction that what was going on was wrong, but also gave him the courage to stand up. If you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a friend of Moltke. In fact, they were part of what was called the Kressau Circle. It was this resistance movement from within Germany against Hitler, and actually, uh, there was eventually involved with an assassination plot though Moltke himself didn't agree with that. Eventually, as you can imagine, they weren't willing to put up with him. He was not only an opponent of the Nazi party, but he was a public one. See, what's so interesting about this man is that he wasn't just sneaking around in the shadows. He very publicly would oppose what was going on, and so he had a target on his back. Eventually, partway through the Second World War, he was arrested. He was brought to trial. 
But what they found is when they brought him to trial is that they didn't have any crime to actually pin on him. He hadn't done anything wrong. He hadn't been breaking any laws except for the fact that he did not agree, well, with what Hitler had been ordering. And so at his trial, the judge, a man by the name of Roland Freitzler, he said, he said, only in one respect are we... He was talking about the Nazi party. He said, only in one respect are we and Christianity alike. We both demand the whole man. It was a very insightful comment because he was exactly right. Both the Nazi party and Christianity demand all of who we are. He then asked Moltke, who do you take your orders from? From the other world Or from Adolf Hitler, who commands your loyalty and your faith? See, that was the issue for Moltke. That was why he was arrested. It was because he was a German second, and he was a Christian first. Jesus was going to uh, give his orders, and it wasn't going to come from Hitler That would define how he lived. And in fact, it was the reason why they eventually put him to death. It was because he was a Christian and nothing else. And see, while we don't live in Nazi Germany, and I'm very thankful that we don't, we still have to answer that same question, though, don't we? Who, Who do we take our orders from? Who commands our loyalty and our faith? Where are we a citizen first? See, as we look at our text this morning, that's really the question the Apostle Paul is going to pose for us. Where do we find our primary loyalty? How do we understand what God calls us to do? So if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open to the book of Philippians. We're going to be continuing on our series in the book of Philippians, and we're going to be in chapter 1, starting in verse 27. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to follow along with me. Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. We're going to finish the chapter this morning. It says this, "'Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ.'" So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Well, that's as far as we're going to read this morning. Would you please bow your head in a word of prayer with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that you continually speak, that you continually convict our hearts. So, Father, this morning, as we come before what you have called us to, Lord, as we consider uh, where we take our orders, whose citizen are we? Lord, I pray, would you be working in our hearts that we would find you first in our lives? Lord, would you grow us together in unity as you help us dive deeper into this faith, that we would look at the face of suffering, not with fear, but with courage, Lord God. Lord, I pray, be at work in our lives this day. 
Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our series in Philippians, and we we entitled this series, Joy in the Midst of Anything. And if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you'll know it's actually a pretty apt title, right? We've been looking at how Paul has been in prison while he's writing this letter. He's been in prison, actually on trial, waiting to see whether or not he is going to live or die. And throughout this book, we've noticed that Paul has actually been rejoicing in all of this, even as he is looking and saying, you know, I might be put to death, I might continue to live, but in all of that, I can still rejoice. And so Paul has been able to do that, and and we looked at last week his, his mindset around that. We looked at how he understood why he could rejoice. He says, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is all gain. Right? If, he, if he is put to death, all that means is he goes to heaven, and that is going to be far better for him. But if he continues to live, that means he gets to serve Christ. That means he gets to give more of his life, more of his time, more of his effort into seeing the gospel go forward, to building up the church, and to raising people to know Jesus Christ. And so really, our passage this morning is just continuing on with what that looks like. It's answering the question, well, what does it mean to live for Christ? And Paul says, verse 27, it means we are to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that is, that is a high calling for us. to to live a life that is worthy of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to dive into looking at what does that mean. But I'm going to say right from the outset, it it means we are called to live as citizens of heaven first. We are citizens of heaven first. So let's look at how I, I got that. Look back at verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, uh, that, that is a high calling, right? To, to, to live in such a manner that is worthy of, of God, of, of Jesus, that, that seems impossible. And in fact, it seems backwards, doesn't it? Right? Because it, the gospel, if you know it, the gospel is about how, how we aren't worthy, right? It's about how, how the fact that, that we sinned, we messed up, we didn't live up to God's standard, and, and our only hope is that someone would forgive our sins. In fact, that's, that is the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that because of what he did, we are forgiven, because we didn't earn it, but Jesus did. He lived that perfect life. He did exactly what God called him to do, and then he died in our place. He took a punishment for our sins. He stood where we were supposed to stand, and he died, and we are able to be forgiven so that anyone who would look on Jesus, who would trust in him, their sins would be forgiven. See, that's the whole message of the gospel, the message of Christianity. It's that we aren't worthy, but Jesus is. So the question is then, what is Paul talking about? Why is he saying then, so now live as a life that is worthy of the gospel? Doesn't that contradict everything that we just said? Well, I think we get a little bit of a a hint here in our Bible. See, if you have an actual Bible in front of you, you can look. There is a little footnote in verse 27. Verse 27, there should be a footnote that says, this verse can also be translated, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
To live a life worthy of the gospel means we live as a good citizen and not of Canada, not of BC, but rather a good citizen of heaven. And I think here Paul is actually using that language on purpose. See, if you remember when we began this series, we talked a little bit about the city of Philippi and the fact that Philippi was known in the ancient world as a very Roman city, right? Philippi was all the way over in Greece. It wasn't near Rome. It wasn't in Italy. It was over there in Greece, but it was a Roman outpost. It was populated mostly by sort of ex-military officers, people who had this strong tie to Rome, right? Government officials and, and other people in that world. And so when they would kind of retire, they'd be done. This was a good place to go for a summer home for a retirement place. Why? Because it was a Roman city, and they took pride in the fact that even if you became a a member, a citizen of that city, you got Roman citizenship. You were given a Roman citizenship, which was a big deal at that time. It meant you weren't accountable to all the local leaders. Actually, you were accountable to Rome. That was where your authority came from. And so any sort of local governor wasn't able to do certain things if you were a Roman citizen, right? We see Paul taking advantage of that throughout the book of Acts. And so What we see is that Paul uses this language. He uses this language because it's something they would have understood. They would have understood what it means to be a citizen of a different place, to live in Greece but to be a citizen of Rome. And so Paul says now, you are to live as a good citizen, not of Rome, but as a citizen of heaven. You are to be, as the church, this outpost of of what heaven is going to look like. In fact, if you skip forward to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says exactly that. You have a citizenship in heaven. Hebrews 13, 14 uses the same kind of language. They say, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Right? As we come to Jesus, we are given this new identity, this new national identity. And Paul says, so your calling is then to live up to that reputation. Live up to what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Right? It's a little bit like traveling outside of Canada. If you've ever gone uh, for a trip and you've talked to people as you're out there, you're going to realize very quickly that they are usually forming their opinion of Canada based off of you, right? They're going to say, oh, this is what Canadians are like, right? My wife and I, we lived in the States for, for just over a year, And people would do this to us all the time. They'd listen to us and maybe we'd say something weird. Maybe we'd do something or think a certain way and they'd go, oh, is that that because you're Canadian? Is that because you're Canadian? People were constantly forming an opinion based on what we did and what we were like about Canada. And sometimes that always made me nervous because I'm like, oh man, like, am I really a good example of all Canadians? Right? Actually, not really. Like, I don't really watch hockey I'm sorry, I I don't dislike it, I just don't really follow it. So people would come up to me in the States and they'd be like, did you see the hockey game? I'm like, no, I didn't. I wasn't watching. I'm sorry, yes, lots of Canadians do watch hockey. I just don't, right? I always got a little bit nervous because I would have to represent 35 million people. And actually, that's the point Paul's getting at. We're not called to be representatives of Canada. We're called to be representatives of Jesus, People were going to form their opinions about who Jesus is and what he has done based on us. 
We are going to be his representatives. Sometimes, whether we like it or not, we are citizen ambassadors for the kingdom of God. People are going to form their opinions on us. See, if I can give you a bit of a a, a look forward to where we're going to go in the fall. Our our fall sermon series, after we're done, the book of Philippians, we're going to look at faith barriers that exist in our culture. Why is it that some people just resist, you know, hearing about Jesus, and especially some of the younger generations, millennial, Gen Z, all that kind of stuff? What are are the big questions they have? So we're going to spend fall looking at that, by the way, come September. But one of the biggest, across the board, all generations, one of the biggest barriers is that Christians are hypocrites. Christians are hypocrites. Now, there's there's lots that we can say about that, and and we are going to, all right? We're going to come back to that. But here, let me just simply say this. They say that because people are watching, right? People watch how we live, how we act, what we say, and and they're judging. They're looking at at what Jesus is going to look like. And a lot of the time, they're coming across and saying, well, I guess they're hypocrites. Why should I have to believe Now, again, we're going to talk about that, but we need to realize, as a church, we are citizens of a different country, and our actions are either going to reflect well or reflect poorly on Christ. We are going to be his ambassadors. In fact, listen to how Peter writes it. He writes to the churches. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, or we could say citizens of a different country, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? Peter says, live such good lives among your neighbors that when they want to speak evil against you, they won't have anything to say. Rather, all they'll be able to do is give glory to God because that is where you have pointed them. See, that is what Paul is calling us to do as the church is to be worthy to take on that name Christian, to represent Jesus Christ. That is the calling for us. Not, not to earn our way in, but now as his representatives to be worthy of, what, of the name of Jesus. Now hear me, I haven't lived a day in my life where I could look back and say, I did it all right. No, no, I, I certainly haven't. I, I, I mess up all the time. But, but the point isn't that we just kind of throw everything away and say, well, I'll never do it. It's just too hard. Rather, it's to say, you know what, how can I today, what, what is the one thing I can be doing today to represent Jesus well? How can I be acting today just a little bit more than yesterday? How can I be pursuing after knowing God even more? See, that's what the Christian life is. It's this process of sanctification, growing to be more and more like Jesus. And that is really what Paul is calling us to do. Not all at once, not perfectly, we're not going to, but day by day, step by step, bit by bit, would we seek to represent Jesus more and more? That as people see our lives, they're not simply seeing us, but they're seeing Jesus. That is the calling Paul has for the church. It's the, Paul, it's the calling Paul has for our lives as well. And so for the rest of this passage, what Paul is essentially doing is just unpacking what that is going to look like. What does it mean then to, to live as this citizen of heaven? How do we do that? 
And Paul answers it with two, two things here. He says the first way you do that is in unity, and the second is in courage. Unity and courage. So look back at verse 27 with me. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, I, I am looking forward to, to hearing about you, whether I get to come to you in person or not, or I just hear about it from someone else. I am looking forward to hearing how you are acting in unity together. You have a common purpose and mission together. See, what's so interesting here is that Paul doesn't talk to them as individuals, rather as the whole church. He's looking to them as the whole church body. In fact, look back at, uh, or look at Ephesians 4, we see almost the exact same line of thinking. Paul writing this also says, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Sound familiar? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. See, when Paul begins to think about living a life for Christ, what does it mean to live as a citizen of heaven? The first thing he thinks of is unity. Unity is a mark of the Christian life, or we could say it's a manifestation of being a citizen of heaven. See, as we have one God, as there is one Holy Spirit, we've been saved into one salvation in Jesus Christ, so we should be bound together as one people. Now, Paul says even here, have one mind amongst yourselves. He doesn't mean we're to be robots, right? Everyone thinking exactly the same. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about having one purpose, one, one goal in mind, one thing that we are all striving towards. In fact, he says that purpose here is the faith of the gospel, that our unity has a goal, it has a, an aim towards it, that we would actually come to know Jesus more and more that our unity would be used in such a way that we would encourage one another in the faith to know the word of God more and more each and every day, that we would be living it out together, right? There's this beautiful saying, I don't know where it comes from, but it says the word of God is like a river that a child can play in and be safe and yet can submerge an elephant, Right? There's always so much that we can dive into in the Word of God that we can constantly be encouraging and pursuing side by side with one another in order to know God more. Right? If you don't believe me, just realize that for this whole time, we've been talking about one verse, and we haven't even dealt with everything in that verse, all right? There is always so much that is in the Word of God that we can continually be learning. And so Paul says, be unified in the church, work together, right? Side by side. The image is somewhat like, a, like an army, right? Marching side by side, going towards one goal. It's not that every person in that army is going to do the exact same thing. Actually, no, they're going to be doing all kinds of different jobs, but they have a goal that is keeping them unified. They have one purpose that they're aiming for, and for us, that is to know Jesus Christ. In fact, when Jesus is going to the cross, he prays for us. He prays for his disciples who are there in front of him, and then he prays for everyone else who will believe afterwards, and this is what he prays. He says that they may all be one 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Right? Jesus prays for the church that is to come, that they might be unified together so that they would put on display who Jesus Christ is that we would put on display the gospel. It's the very thing Paul is looking for here as well. And here's what I want us to notice. What I want us to notice is that we cannot do it alone. See, I think a lot of times when we, when we think about the Christian life, we think in very individualistic terms. We live in a very individualistic society. We think about, you know, here's my accomplishments. This is what I am doing. This is how I do it, right? We think about ourselves. And so when it comes to the faith, we, we often assume, well, what that means for me is that I need to be pursuing Christ. And so we get people and they, they'll say things like, you know what? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I, church just isn't that important to me. Right, yes, I, I follow after Jesus, but you know what? Ah, uh, you know what? Church is kind of old fashioned. I don't really like the, the institution side of it. And then so I just kind of do my own thing. See, I think Paul would say, You don't understand. You can't be following Jesus outside of unity with fellow believers. I think I can even go so far as to say that being unified, being in a faith or a local church is the only way we're going to be able to faithfully serve God. We're not going to be able to do it outside of being with one another. God has made us in such a way that the church is actually necessary for our Christian life. And so we're actually going to talk about unity a whole lot more. Next week, pretty much all of it is going to be talking about church unity. So there's lots more to say. But let me simply say this. How do we think about the church? I think often we view it as, as a, an optional addition to our faith. It's something we get to add on when, when we feel like it. It's not something necessary to our growth. I think this passage calls us to flip that around. Actually, it is necessary for us to be following Jesus, for us to be a good citizen of heaven, to be putting on display Jesus means we are called to be unified together as the people of God. Actually, that's the first way Paul has uh, for us to be being a good citizen of heaven. The church is to put on display the gospel of Jesus. So that's the first thing Paul says. The second is... The second is courage in suffering. Look back at verse 28. Verse 28, he says, uh, you are to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul continues and says, look, the church is to be unified, but they are also not to be scared of any opponent. Actually, they can come into these times of adversity and trial and suffering, and they can come with a fearlessness because God is with them. Paul even says this is going to be a sign of your salvation and of their destruction, talking about the opponents, right? The idea here is that as the church stands together, stands unafraid, even in the midst of suffering, persecution of people attacking them, that is a demonstration of both their faith and of the fact that their opponents are leading to destruction. 
Right? It's very similar to how Paul talks in 1 Corinthians. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, Paul says, look, you can look at the cross in two ways. You can look at it and say, that's the most foolish thing I've ever seen. There's the leader of your religion being executed publicly. How is that a good thing? How are you following a crucified and executed Savior? Or you look at it and say, that is the way that I have been made right with God. It's because Jesus died in my place. It is the power of God for my salvation. See, Paul says it's the same thing here. As you stand together, as you stand unafraid of what your opponents can do, what you are doing is you're putting on display the fact that you trust in Jesus more than what they can do. That actually you do not fear them because God is with you. That's a sign of your salvation as much as it is the foolishness of their actions. In fact, Paul continues on in verse 29. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Right? Paul had been attacked for preaching the gospel. In fact, in Philippi, he had been attacked for preaching the gospel. He'd been thrown in jail, and he had gone through that suffering, and now he's back in jail and going through that again. And actually, the Philippian church is now starting to face that same persecution. And so Paul writes to them, and he says, I want you guys to know you're not alone in that. That actually, it's the same thing I have been going through, so now you are going to be taking that up as well. And so Paul writes and he says, I want to comfort you and I want to encourage you. I want to give you courage for the time coming up. And what's interesting is what he writes, isn't it? Because what does he write there in verse 29? He says, it has been granted to you. It has been given to you not only to believe your faith, but it's been given to you to suffer as well. In fact, some translations, I think, rightly translate it. They say, it has been graciously given. It has been graced to you, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. And I think this is where we look at that and we think, what are you talking about, Paul? How are you writing that? You're saying it has been given to me to, to suffer? And we struggle with that idea because it's hard to see how a good God gives suffering to his people. And, and so we, we question and we, we get a little bit confused. Ta-da. There we go. <laughs> Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Shane. There you go. There you go. Where were we? <laughs> Verse 29, it has been granted to us to suffer. Paul writes this not to scare them. Actually, he's writing this to comfort them. He's writing this to actually give them courage for what is coming up, for the, for the trials that they're facing. Paul writes this so that they might be emboldened as they face it. And so we need to understand how exactly is that comforting? How exactly is that comforting that God is going to give us suffering? 
And I think the first way we, we need to probably think about it is to realize that when we face these trials, every bit of suffering, every trial, every pain has been weighed and measured by the hand of God. We have never faced anything, good or bad, that has not come from a gracious and loving Father who has weighed out every single trial. Every drop of suffering we've faced has come from the hand of God. It mean, now, that doesn't mean that everything we go through is going to be super easy, that it's not going to be difficult, that it's not going to be painful. No, of course, yes, it's going to be. And it doesn't mean, as, as so often I hear, Christians, uh, well-meaning, but mistakenly will say things like, you know what, God's not going to give you anything that you can't handle. God's not going to give you more than you can handle. And actually, the Bible says, yeah, he will. But yeah, God is going to give you more than you can handle. He's not going to give you more than he can handle. And see, that is exactly what we are meant to understand as we face these trials. It's not that we are going to be strong enough. It's that God is definitely going to be strong enough to help us through. God is going to be the one to carry us and to allow us to make it through these times of trial and suffering. We're going to have to learn to rely on God and on him alone. And see, that ought to be comforting. There is no evil, there is no trial that has come upon you that didn't come from the hand of God and for the very purpose that you might grow in your faith. There is no random event. There is no sort of chaos that is just spiraling utterly out of control. No, no, God actually has that in control. And God is going to use that so that you would be growing in your faith, that you would be learning to rely more and more on him. And not only that, but that God himself might be glorified. So you look back at verse 29, what does he say? He says, it's been granted not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. See, that is the goal in all these trials and suffering, is that we would give glory unto God, that as we go through this, relying on his strength, we give all glory to him because he is the one who has brought us through. As we face this suffering, we do so putting on display Jesus. In fact, when Peter writes again to the church, he says this, for, for, this has, or for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, that's what... The calling is, follow the example of Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus who suffered on our behalf, trusting all the while in God the Father. So we are called to follow after Jesus in the same way and trust ourselves into the hands of God himself. As we do that, what we are saying is, God is greater God is greater than my enemies. God is greater than my pain. God is greater than my suffering. God is greater than everything that I might go through. God is greater, and I'm trusting in him. See, that's what it means to suffer the same way Jesus suffered. It means we're giving everything into the hands of God. But you know what I really love about this passage? What I really love, what I find so beautiful here is the fact that Paul puts these two things side by side. I don't think it's an accident that Paul says you are to stand up with courage in suffering right after he's just talked about unity in the church. It wasn't an accident. 
In fact, you know if you've gone through anything, if you've gone through times of trial and of suffering, sometimes the hardest part is when you feel like you're all alone. When it feels like no one else cares, no one else knows, and no one else is going to help you, that is far more difficult than most of the trials we face, and that is exactly what Paul, what God has made the church to deal with. We're not meant to go through it alone. We are not meant to go through all these trials and suffering all by ourselves. God has given us the church to work together. In fact, some of the trials you've gone through are so you can talk to other people who are dealing with it, that you can encourage others as you have gone through these trials and suffering and pain. God has given that to you so you can encourage others also. It means we actually need to be looking out for one another. It means we have to get to know one another and know what we're dealing with, know what we're struggling with. It means we actually have to look out and care for those who are dealing with, with trials and pain. It means that's what the church is meant to look like. It's to be this outpost of heaven, these citizens of heaven working together to actually go through this stuff together. We're meant to do it together. No lone ranger Christians so my prayer is actually this place would be that, would continue to grow and be that more and more, bit by bit, that we would be growing to be more and more looking like Christ. As we face these trials with courage, fearlessly standing up together, as a demonstration of what God has done in us, that we would give God all the glory. So this morning as we close, I, I want to invite the worship team to make their way back. But I want to ask, uh, whose citizen are you first? Are, are you first and foremost a Canadian? Maybe not. We're not particularly patriotic. No, you might have your job as your primary identity. It might be your family. It might be your kids. It might be your spouse. It might even be the ministry that you do that has become, in a way, your primary identity, my prayer is that we would be found first and foremost as citizens of heaven, that we would be found worthy of the gospel, worthy of taking on the name Christian. See, I began by telling you about this man, Moltke. He was found guilty of being a Christian. And after his trial, before his execution, he wrote two letters, one to his two sons and one to his wife. And to his wife, he described the trial, and this is what he wrote. He says, I have been chosen to be attacked and condemned, not as an owner of a large estate, not as an aristocrat, not as a Prussian, not as a German. All of this is explicitly excluded at my trial, but rather as a Christian and as nothing else at all. See, at the end of his life, he got to say, you know what, the only thing that people will remember is that I took on the name Christian. Oh, I pray that would be our desire as well, that as we go through this life, our conviction would be, first and foremost, I am a citizen of heaven. I have been saved by Jesus Christ, not because I have done enough, but because he has done enough. And so now my goal is to live in a manner that bears up to the name of Jesus Christ. That before anything else, I am a Christian. 
We serve Jesus Christ, and it is our goal that everything would be found to be worthy of the great gospel that he has given. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace you have given. Lord, we don't deserve, we do not deserve what you have done in us, and yet, Father, it was your good purpose to save us. Lord, I I pray, would we take on that mantle, take on the weight of what it means to be called a Christian, to be a good citizen of heaven, to represent you well. Father, I pray, be at work in our lives that each and every day we would be growing to be more and more into the image of your Son. We pray these things in your name. Amen.